Thank you guys for praying with me. And uh, we're going to jump into the Word of God now. If you have a Bible or device, we're going to be in uh, Romans. That was like two years ago. Revelation chapter 2. How do you balance... Oh, sorry, I was going to say this. We got these things because Keegan Hawthorne whined to me and said that we don't have sermon notes. So it's really fancy. There's a big open spot where you can write sermon notes, and it also tells you what's going on. If you don't have one of these, there's some back there with Scott, and uh, he would love to get you one. In fact, if you want one, you can raise your hand, and I'm going to volunteer Scott that he can come and, and bring them to you. So if you want one, put your hand up. But... What I thought about a lot this week is how do we balance as Christians being in the world, but not of the world? This is some church lingo that we use. We want to be in the world, but not of the world. And, and in a deeper way, how do you love the world, but not love the world? Do you know what I mean? We're called to love the world, the people in the world, everything that's everyone that needs Jesus, but we're called not to fall in love with the ways of the world. And so we have this thing going on constantly where we need to be in the world, but not of it. We need to love the world, but not be in love with the world. And these are questions that Christians have been pondering for as long as we have existed because Jesus told us that we are not of this world, meaning our permanent home is not here. This is a temporary stop-off for us eternal souls and children of God, but he calls us to live in this world and tells us blatantly that there will be struggles and trials while we are here. But we're still called to be here and to love the people. To figure all of this out at the same time is not an easy task. We're constantly figuring out, what does that mean? How do I be in this world but not live my life of this world? And the church that we're going to read about today was in the middle of the same kind of questions that we are going through today. We're in the book of Revelation. We have been for a few weeks. Revelation, if you've been here, you know it, it, it's a fancy word that just means unveiling. God is showing us some truth that we did not previously know. He's revealing things about himself and about the world that we didn't understand before. And he's telling all the people who are reading this and people who are reading it now that we can grow in our knowledge of him. Chapter 1 describes for us the glorified Jesus Christ. It has this amazing depiction of him in all of his power. And you can go back and read that if you weren't here. It just talks about Jesus in his fully glorified state in heaven and it's amazing. And then in chapter 2 it begins to write specific letters to individual churches. There are seven churches that have letters written to them specifically in the book of Revelation. And we've read about a couple of them. The first one, Ephesus, was a church that was doing all of the right things, saying the right things, going about things the right way, but for all the wrong reasons. Their motivation was not that they loved Christ. Their motivation was just to, to be a good person. Maybe you've struggled with that in your life at some point where you just kind of say, I'm going through the motions, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but I've lost that first love for why I'm living that way. This is what Ephesus was going through. And so Christ calls them, come back to your first love. Repent and go back to the way that it was. And then he talks about Smyrna. Last week we covered Smyrna. 
a church that was remaining faithful to the Lord despite the fact that they are going through incredible poverty and persecution. One of the only churches that Christ doesn't give them a critique of something that they're doing wrong. He just he sees that they're in the middle of very, very difficult poverty and persecution. And he just says, you're being faithful. Continue to be faithful despite what's happening. And maybe you're in a season of your life like that where it's just hard. It's just difficult. Like life is just hard. And yet you're still trying to remain faithful to what God has called you to. And that's a good thing. Today we're going to be talking to talking about a church called Pergamum. And Pergamum is a, a church that it's also called Pergamon, Pergamos. There's a few different names. They're all speaking about the same place. Pergamum is uh, north of Ephesus and Smyrna. If I have that map, I think it's my next one. If you start Ephesus over here on the bottom left, you travel 50 miles north up into Smyrna, and then you keep traveling about 50 miles north and 15 miles inland, and you end up at Pergamum. You can see this is just kind of traveling the circle. It's going to come all the way back around the seven churches. This is modern-day Bergama, Turkey. I think I have a picture of that. That's today what Pergamum looks like. It's still a large city in Turkey. Still a lot of people there. The name Pergamum means citadel. It's named for, there's a mesa area in the middle of the town that sits 1,100 feet tall almost. And it's the citadel where they protected their city from, and it's, it's called Citadel. You can kind of see it there. This is the ruins of Pergamum. And up on top, we're going to talk about what was up there in that top area. It was a city that was believed to be extremely academic and cultured. At the time, it had the world's second largest library, second only to the great library of Alexandria, which if you're one of those uh, bibliophile book lovers, you know one of the saddest things in history is that the library of Alexandria was burnt down and they lost all of that. So this was one of the biggest libraries in the world. At one point, Mark Antony gifted this entire library to Cleopatra, his new wife. I, when you're Mark Antony, you can just do that. You can just be like, here, you can have this. And then, yeah, so that's what power comes with. Pliny, a Roman author, called Pergamum by far the most distinguished city in Asia. So they fancied themselves very academic, very cultured, a place where smart, beautiful people live. That was kind of the culture there. But there was a major downside to all this so-called culture. And we're going to read that. If you have your Bibles open, Revelation chapter 2, Verses 12 through 17, we read about Pergamum. And it says this, And the angel of the church, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's pretty brutal. I know you live in Satan's house. You hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, so we're going to break this down. Right from the get-go, just as the last couple weeks, each letter starts with a designation of Jesus that we borrow from chapter 1. Remember, there's that whole explanation of who Jesus is. And then in each church, the author takes a line from that designation of who Jesus is and applies it to this church. And this one, he talks about Jesus as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, when you read about the sharp two-edged sword, I hope you think about other Bible verses, which we'll get to. But Jesus has the power of the sword. And there's this other verse that I hope pops into your mind, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The words of Jesus are powerful, and they can divide what needs to be divided. And in verse 13, Jesus acknowledges and encourages the church. This is important. We, we start out, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus first acknowledges that Pergamum is an incredibly difficult place to live if you're a Christian. He says, I know you live where Satan's throne is. What does that mean? How would you like that? God's talking to you says, you live in the middle of Satan's house. That's pretty rough. There's a few things that that can mean. I told you in the beginning of this sermon series, I'm going to give you information. I'm not going to teach you what to think. I'm going to hopefully give you information on how to think about this. There's a bunch of different things that Bible scholars have thought. What does it mean that Satan's throne is here? The first one is there was a temple in Pergamum dedicated to a false god named Dionysus or Bacchus, and he was considered the god of wine. He was depicted as half man, upper half, and half goat, Lower half sounds like something out of Narnia, right? So he's this half man, half goat, but he's got horns on his head. I think I have a picture. This is supposedly Dionysus. Some people believe that the modern idea that we have of what Satan looks like comes from Dionysus, the horned beast. But many people in Pergamum worshipped Dionysus as the god of wine, And so that whole idea of this being something that resembles the idea of what Satan would look like could be why God says this is Satan's throne. There's this temple to this this false god. But there's another temple dedicated to another false god in Pergamum. In fact, there's many. There's another one dedicated to a god named Asclepius. And Asclepius was considered to be the god of healing. And he was depicted as a serpent which if you've ever read Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, Satan is described as a serpent. Those who worshipped him would go to the temple of Asclepius. They would, this is so crazy to me. Okay, listen. They would go to the temple and lay down on the ground. 
or fall asleep on the ground. And in this temple, non-poisonous snakes just roamed freely. And they believed that if one of the snakes would come crawl on them, that that was a sign from Asclepius that they would be healed from whatever physical ailment they had. I think snakes are disgusting. This makes me very uncomfortable. But they would do this. And of course, you've seen this logo before, I'm sure, even if you don't realize it. That is the rod of Asclepius in the middle of that. Every ambulance, every emergency medical system thing that you see has this logo on it. That is the rod of Asclepius. This stuff appears in our world far more than you realize. We still have these throwbacks to ancient pagan gods. And the idea was that the snake can bring healing. There's yet another temple here in Pergamum. This one is to a god that you've probably heard of, Zeus or Jupiter. This temple sat on the top of that Acropolis that we saw. And it was called the Altar of Zeus. And it was built upon the Acropolis. It was 100 feet wide, 40 feet tall, and another 100 feet deep. And if you look at that, that is a recreation of it that is in a, I believe that's in a museum in Berlin. And if you look at it, it kind of looks like a throne, doesn't it? And so this is another reason why God would say that is the throne of Satan. Even more than all of those temples, which that's enough, Pergamum was also known worldwide for being the first city that built a temple to a living emperor of Rome. And so they have all these false gods who are, are dead, but then they also have a temple that is built to Augustus, the Roman emperor, and they are worshiping him as God and Savior. In 29 BC, they built the temple of Augustus, who then dedicated his own temple to what he called the divine Augustus. This guy, super humble. Refers to himself as the divine Augustus, receives the worship from the people, and they begin to worship. Pergamum was the official center of the imperial cult for Asia, and so people would literally worship him as if he was God and Savior. All of this is going on around Pergamum. And so the Christians in Pergamum are living among not just one or two, but at least four, probably more, of these false cults that are literally worshiping false gods. And yet somehow, they are remaining faithful and holding fast to the gospel, even though they live in the middle of Satan's throne. We don't know which one of those things is why God uses that term. I think, just my idea, Maybe it's all of them. Maybe Jesus is looking and says, look at this, you've got, you've got a snake cult, you've got a throne, you've got all of these things, and so this is the throne of Satan. You are living in the middle of enemy territory, and yet, he says, I understand the struggle that you're enduring in living in such a place. He acknowledges what they're dealing with. And then he offers them encouragement. He says, I see that you've been faithful and you've held fast. You haven't denied my faith, even though one of your own, Antipas, was, was martyred because of his faith. And 
When Jesus says that they've held fast and not denied him, what he's probably talking about is they have refused to go to the imperial cult temple and offer sacrifices to Augustus and declare Caesar is Lord. Because that was what was expected of all the people in Pergamum, that at least once a year you would go to the temple of Augustus and you would declare before everybody, Caesar is Lord. And these people have refused to do that because they know God does not want you to worship anybody but him, the one true God. And to do so is a sin. And so they've refused to do that. It's probably what cost Antipas his life. He probably refused to do that. Some people believe that he was the bishop of this church at the time. He refuses to worship Caesar, and so they kill him. We don't know much about Antipas from the Bible, except for what it tells us in these verses. This is not Herod Antipas. That's a different person. But this Antipas is a believer. He's a faithful believer in the Lord. He's called, in that verse, he's called my faithful witness, which is amazing because that term is usually only used to talk about Jesus himself. And so Antipas is referred to as my faithful witness. Church tradition that's handed down tells us that Antipas was a believer who was martyred by the emperor. He was placed into a hollow brass bowl and roasted alive over a fire. Not a fun way to die. So he goes through all of this and he's faithful. And then the people of Pergamum, who are followers, even watch that happen. They see him martyred. They hear the stories. And yet still, they have remained faithful in the midst of this very, very dark and difficult place. So after giving Pergamum an acknowledgement and an encouragement, he's then going to get into the things that he needs to tell them that they need to change. Which, as a side note, I just want to say, that is a good way to handle people in your life, especially your kids. If you have to go to your kids and give them a critique, or if you have a concern with them, give them some acknowledgement, give them some encouragement, and then get into the things that they need to address. This is a good way to handle your life. Be like Jesus. Do what Jesus does. But then Jesus does make his concerns about the church known. Read with me again, verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay. So the believers of Pergamum are holding the teachings of Balaam. What does that mean? If you go all the way back to Numbers chapter 20 through through 25, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a lot, but there's a story in Numbers way back in the Old Testament about a prophet named Balaam. You might remember Balaam because we talk about Balaam's donkey. This is the guy who starts whipping his donkey and then suddenly the donkey starts talking to him and he acts as if that's not weird. He just starts talking back to the donkey. It's a very crazy story. But God opened the mouth of the donkey to, to get Balaam to see some truth. Anyways, that's not what we're talking about here. Balaam is a prophet, but he goes astray because he saw a way that he could financially benefit from his gifting. And so Balaam is this prophet of God, but another guy named Balak is the king of the Moabites. And Balak sees Israel coming 
through the land of Moab. And he begins to get concerned that Israel is going to take over Moab, that they're going to fill his land and take it away from the Moabites. And so Balak sins for Balaam, and he wants Balaam to come and curse Israel. This is a prophet of Israel. But he sends for him, he says, I'll pay you really well if you come and curse Israel for me. And so Balaam goes, goes up on top of a hill, and he begins to try to speak curses to Israel. But when he opens his mouth, nothing but blessings come out. He physically cannot curse Israel. He tries three times. He gets up there, he's all ready to curse them, and then he just gives amazing blessings. In fact, in the middle of this, he gives this incredible blessing. In Numbers 24, you can read it, about He's prophesying about Jesus coming. It's this amazing Messiah prophecy. And every time he tries to open his mouth and be like, ah, you should die. He's like, ah, you shall live. Like, it's amazing. But then he figures out a way around it. He he tells, Balak gets upset. He's like, I paid you money to come curse them and you're blessing them. He's like, "I, I can't. Like, I literally physically can't do it. But then he gives Balaam some advice. And he basically says, Here's what you do. I can't curse them, but they can curse themselves. Here's what you should do. He says, you need to send your beautiful young women of Moab in amongst the men of Israel and and, and tell them to seduce them. And if you do that, they will curse themselves because they will begin to engage in sexual immorality with these young women, which will lead them to also worshiping their gods. Women, you don't understand how much power you have. God understands this. And so this is exactly what happens. The men of Israel begin to engage in these relationships. The women then say, hey, come to church with me. Not real church. It's false churches. And those men of Israel begin to worship Baal and Peor, these false gods. And so they bring curse upon themselves. And so they embrace, listen, this is where we're bringing it around. They are embracing the systems of the world rather than staying faithful to God. When he says you have those among you who are teaching the the teachings of Balaam, this is what he's talking about. Those who say, "Ah, we don't need to be separate from the world, we just fully embrace the world, and then we can worship God too. That's the teaching of Balaam. And then it also mentions the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which we actually talked about a couple weeks ago, and I didn't unpack this. I kind of forgot to, but it's a very similar thing. In Acts chapter 6, this is what most Bible scholars believe, Acts chapter 6, there were seven men who were chosen to be deacons for the church, the early church. And one of those men was a guy named Nicholas. Great name, not a great story. Nicholas was a deacon who went astray. And at some point, Nicholas started to teach people that basically do whatever you want and the grace of God is sufficient and he'll cover it. Go be a part of the religious orgies. Go be a part of everything that's happening in these cities. And it's fine. God's love is good enough. It'll, just, it'll cover everything. You might remember Paul talks about this in Corinthians. He says, should we sin so that grace may abound? Meaning, should we just, since God's grace is so good, should I just sin more so that God can have more grace? Paul says, certainly not. He says, that's ridiculous. In fact, if you look at the original language, he basically says, over my dead body. May it never be said, right? And this is what 
the Nicolaitans are believing. They're basically saying, again, you can just embrace the way that the world works and all the sin and all the stuff that's going on, and God will just kind of cover it, no big deal. So the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans are the same thing. Don't try to stay away from the world, just, just jump in. Just fully accept the way of this world. Don't look different, don't stand apart, don't stay holy. God will still love you, no big deal. Earlier, when he's talking about the Nicolaitans, Jesus says, you hate what they teach and so do I. It's pretty harsh language. Jesus is saying, I hate that. Because he understands that they are just destroying themselves when they say, ah, just, just jump into whatever the world has. Just be tolerant of everyone and everything because after all, don't we all just end up in the same destination? This is what we hear now. The same people, many people that even claim to be Christians, and they say, you don't need to be different. Just embrace what the world has and God's grace will cover it. Even in the midst of all of that, even in the midst of people within their own church preaching these heresies, there are still faithful believers in Pergamum, and yet they're tolerating this heresy within their church. And this is what Jesus says, I have this against you. Even though you're faithful, even though most of you are doing what you're supposed to be doing, and you're doing for the right reasons, and you hold fast, you're still tolerating people being among you teaching these lies. And it's not just that they hold the beliefs, they are pushing those beliefs on other people, telling them, hey, just embrace the world system. Just be like them. And they're kind of saying, well, we don't, we don't want to rock the boat too much. And so we'll just tolerate that. They're acting indifferently to false teaching. And Jesus finds that concerning. This is a big thing in our world. There are people sitting in this room right now that I know have left other churches, and I'm not trying to talk about like how great our church is, but we try really hard to stick to the Word of God. I know people have left other churches because the churches are now saying, hey, let's just accept that. Let's just be like the rest of the world. I normally hate it, I'll be honest, when somebody says, oh, I went to this other church and I just didn't like that church, so I came to your church. That's just sheep swapping. I don't like that. But if somebody says, I went to this church and they were teaching heresy, so I came over here, I'm good with that. Because heresy should not be tolerated within the church. Especially when it goes directly against the biblical understanding. We have this word that's become like the gospel of our world, tolerance. And tolerance should simply mean that we treat everybody with respect and love no matter what they believe. We act peaceably, we try to live in harmony. That's what it should be. What it's become is you can't tell anybody that they're wrong. You can't disagree with anybody. You can't tell anybody that you have a different view of things. Otherwise, you're a hateful bigot. That's just not accurate. It's deeply flawed. Within the church of God, there is truth. And to tolerate false teaching being pushed and promoted within the church is a sin. 
And if that's happening in our church, it means that our church leadership, me and the elders, are failing to do what God has called us to do. I've told the elders many times, if I ever get up there and start teaching something that is not biblical, pull me down real quick. Ryan has no problem with that. He will cut me down. I said, if I ever get up and preach a whole sermon and I don't quote the Bible one time, something's wrong. One of my professors in seminary said something that caused me to think deeply for a long time. Because I'm not somebody who loves altercations with people. I don't shy away from them because pushing it off to a leader just makes it worse. But I don't love it. But one of my professors said, if your church doesn't have church discipline, you don't have a church. It's true. Because there's going to be people that come in like wolves among the sheep and try to push these false teachings. The church of Pergamum is largely a church full of people that are holding fast and remaining faithful. But there were some among them that were teaching these lies and they were being tolerated. They were allowing teaching among them that you can go ahead and just fully engage into this world and its systems and its idols and its sexual immorality and just generally act like everyone else and it's fine. Not a big deal. And what does Jesus say to that? Verse 16, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's pretty harsh language. Jesus says repent. Repent means turn around, go the other direction. Change your heart, change your mind, go the other way. Jesus says, otherwise I will come and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And we're going back to the sword. The double-edged sword from Jesus is both judgment and his word. He's saying, I will bring my judgment and my word against you if you continue to allow this false teaching in a place that is supposed to be pushing the gospel only. Let's look at verse 17 again. Jesus has this, like in each of the letters, he has this listen up moment. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What does that mean? The last couple weeks, each week, he says, he who has an ear, let them hear. And then he speaks about conquerors or overcomers. He says, if you're faithful, if you're faithful to not become one of these people who just says fully engage the world, just send it up and who cares? And if you are faithful to not allow that in your church, if you are a faithful overcomer, then I will give you these blessings. And then he lists off these blessings. He says, I will give some of the hidden manna. What's hidden manna? If you've read the story in the Old Testament, manna is the bread that God provides to Israel while they are, are wandering in the desert. Do you know what manna literally means? What is it? That's what it means. God provides this like bread, and Israel's like, what is it? And so they just called it that forever. What is it? The hidden, what is it? God is saying, if you are faithful, I will give you the provision that you need to survive. 
whether it's literally bread or if it is the word of God, it is the bread of life, Jesus Christ. It is fellowship with Jesus. I will give you what you need to succeed in this endeavor that I have you on. He says, I'll give you a white stone. What does that mean? A couple ideas here. Some would say it represents, back in these times, if you were on trial, at the end of a trial, you'd have a jury, similar like to today, and at the end of the trial, they would either put a white stone into a vessel or a black stone. And the white stone means you are acquitted. And so they would count up the stones and whoever, if it's more white stones, you're acquitted. If it's more black stones, you're guilty. And so this idea is, he's saying, I will give you a white stone. You are acquitted. You are held not guilty for your sin, right? We've talked about this through the gospel. But there's another idea here. Another normal thing at this time is if somebody invited you to a banquet or some sort of event, they would give you a white stone. And that was your ticket of admittance to the event. So this is another idea. That God gives you a white stone and says, you are welcomed into my family. You're welcomed into eternal life. Whatever it is. Either way, this is really cool. God giving a white stone to those who are faithful. And then he says, with a new name written on the stone. And we don't know exactly what this is, but either way, this is really cool. Either that means he's giving a white stone to those who are faithful with his new name, a new name of Christ that only his faithful believers know, which in that world, your name was very, very powerful. It held a lot of power. So he says, I will give you my name that nobody else knows. So either that or, another cool idea, he gives you a stone with your new name. That Christ gives you a new identity when you are an overcomer. A name that only you have. It's almost like a pet name that God calls you. I I call my wife Babe. If anybody else calls my wife Babe, not okay. Right? So maybe God says, this is is your name. Only only for you. And that's, uh, that makes me like feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Like God would give me a pet name. I don't know which one of those two it is, but either way, it's very cool. And I also like, this is, I haven't fully figured this out, but if you, if you remember back to verse 13 in the beginning, he says, you have held fast my name. And so if, if this whole verse is talking about God's new name, then that's cool because it talks in the beginning about holding fast to the name of Jesus. And then at the end he says, and, and I will give you my new name. There's some cool connection there that I'm not fully grasping onto. Maybe you can figure it out. Overall, the challenge of this letter to Pergamum to us today is that we too want to be a church that holds fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we would never deny our faith. Worship team, you guys can come up. But also, Not just that, but that we would remain faithful to true biblical teaching and not give in to the false idols of the world around us. Because this is what everybody is saying now. Just embrace the world, buy into its systems, and you can worship Jesus on your own. That's fine. We don't mind as long as you don't tell us we're wrong about anything ever. 
This is what everyone is pushing. And it's not new. It was happening in Pergamum 2,000 years ago. And Jesus comes to him and says, even though you're faithful for the most part, and you know, even though you are sitting in the throne of Satan, and I would argue he could probably say that to us as well. Even though you are sitting in the throne room of Satan, you are, you are trying to remain faithful to me, and yet I hold this against you. You're tolerating these lies. Much of the church in America today is Pergamum. Even if they are even if they love Jesus, they're still just kind of saying, ah, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to push it. Let, let's just fully engage into the systems of this world and not try to be different because we don't want to look weird. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to make anybody mad. But here's the simple truth. And this is going to sound weird to somebody here. The gospel is offensive. You need to understand that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It's good news to those who are willing to humble themselves and say, you know what? I've sinned. I've fallen short. And I need to adjust so that I can be connected to God on his terms. But to those who are not willing to humble themselves, it's offensive because it says there's only one way. There's only one God. There's only one path to him. And so anybody who doesn't believe that is going to be offended. That's okay. Because it's God's world. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so if you start to teach that that's not true, then you have let go of the gospel and you are preaching a false doctrine. I hope and pray that that is never the case in this church. I hope and pray that if I ever said something like that, that the godly elders and leaders would be like get this guy off stage right now. Because I don't want to be guilty of that. I don't want to be faithless. I want God to look at us and to say, you have held fast and you have remained faithful and you're not allowing lies to be disseminated about me in your church. If we're going to truly hold fast and remain faithful to him, we have got to be more concerned about what he thinks than what the that's difficult. It's hard to live in this world. Just like Jesus acknowledges, I understand you live in the throne room of the devil, and yet you remain faithful. May that be said of us. May that be said of you in your workplaces, in your family, in your friends. May you remain faithful, always speaking the truth in love. Don't miss that. The Word of God says again and again, Speak the word of truth in love. Because the reason that we tell the truth is because we long for people to know Christ. So that they may be saved. So that they may know his love and his joy. Will you pray with me? God, this is a difficult word. This letter to Pergamum sits... It hits so close to where we are that it is, it is a difficult word. And let, yet let us remain faithful to you. Not just in our actions, not just in our deeds, but in making sure that we are not tolerating people around us that's lying about who you are. 
Help us to remain faithful to your gospel. Understanding that it may be offensive, but that ultimately it is your very word that can save us. We love you, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.